Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever considered what it would be like to run alongside a beam of light? Like a race, you chase after it. As you gain in speed, you look at the beam. What does it look like? Is it still a straight line? Do the particles within bounce around? Are there particles at all? Is the motion even still straight? Or does it move like a wave? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. And today we'll be looking at one of the most influential scientists of all time, Albert Einstein. Best known for his work in physics and introducing us to that all-important equation, E equals MC squared. But few realize how complex Albert Einstein's life really was, such as how Einstein dealt with constant disappointment up until his first big breakthrough in 1905, or how he grew up with a speech impediment. Indeed, Einstein's story was not always rainbows, but it was enlightening. And thanks to his work, we enjoy great technology such as fiber optics and nuclear energy. He was, and still is, the grandfather to our modern views on science. But without further ado, let's crack into the life of one of science's greatest minds, Albert Einstein. The story of Albert Einstein begins with Hermann and Pauline Einstein. Pauline came from a modestly successful family who had made their fortune in the corn trade. Herman, on the other hand, came from a much humbler background and was working as a merchant when he met Pauline. Despite an 11-year age gap, the two fell in love and on August 8, 1876, got married. Pauline was 18 and Herman was 29. The two settled in the city of Ulm, Württemberg, in Germany. There, Hermann worked as a salesman peddling feather pillows. Pauline remained at home, taking care of the house. Then, on March 14, 1879, their first child was born, Albert Einstein. Think they had any idea of how special he would be? <laughs> Not in the slightest. Shortly after Einstein was born, Hermann's brother Jacob approached him with a business proposition. Jacob was an electrical engineer and hoped to start a new electrical manufacturing company in Munich. He wanted his brother to come with him to run the business side. Herman agreed. He was not satisfied with his work as a pillow salesman, and seeing the lucrative prospect of the explosion in electricity, he sought to cash in. 
So in the summer of 1879, just six weeks after Albert was born, the Einsteins packed up and moved to Munich. There, Hermann and Jacob started their electrical manufacturing company. They competed with other electrical firms at the time for contracts to cities and small towns looking to go electric, setting up power lines, manufacturing generators, you name it. Jacob would design and build everything, while Herman handled the day-to-day business, such as acquiring contracts. It's easy to see how young Albert was influenced by electricity. It was essentially his family's whole life. Indeed, it was. While Herman and Jacob worked, Pauline had the family's second child on November 18, 1881, little Marie Einstein, nicknamed Maya. Yes, the Einsteins were a growing family, but none grew quite as fast as little Albert. No doubt solving quantum theories and writing intrinsic postulates. Actually, that wasn't the case. Einstein enjoyed puzzles and spent a lot of time building things with his toys, but he wasn't an outright genius, at least not on the surface. He was a quiet boy and preferred solitude for quiet contemplation. Albert also suffered from fierce temper tantrums. His sister Marie actually described them somewhat comically, saying, quote, My brother's nose would turn white while the rest of his face would turn yellow. He'd stamp his feet, throw himself to the floor, and wail about. He even threw a chair at a tutor once in a manic fit. They never returned. Yeesh, who knew? Well, that's not all. Albert also had a minor speech impediment. He often had to practice saying what he wanted under his breath before speaking, sometimes saying sentences to himself three or four times before speaking out loud. This earned him the nickname of Dea de Perta, or the dopey one. This might have been a mild form of echolalia, where someone involuntarily repeats something. This can sometimes be associated with autism, though it's unclear if Albert had it. It's interesting to note that autism has been known to be associated with high IQs. Mm -hmm. All this impediment means, though, was that Einstein was human, just like the rest of us. Besides, Einstein later accredited his minor impediment to learning how to observe. It was in the formative years I gained that most empirical skill, one that would remain with me the rest of my life. Simply to remain in a state of near silence and observe my surroundings as they appeared so. In other words, Einstein took his time to develop his observational skills, learning to visualize and think about the world around him. Albert also had a natural curiosity about him, one which caused him to constantly wander off. He always seemed to be in deep thought, trying to explore and understand things, which proved strenuous at times for his poor mother, who constantly had to wrangle the poor child. When he wasn't doing that, he would usually play the violin with his mother. Music was a particular passion of Albert's. Pauline was an avid pianist and wanted to make sure her son also felt the same love of music she had. While Albert didn't play the piano, he found his instrument in the violin. The two would play together constantly. By 1885, Einstein was ready for his first day of school. He was five years old. Herman and Pauline sent the boy to the Catholic elementary school in Munich. Sending Albert to a Catholic school might seem odd, considering the Einsteins were Jewish. Yet the family never really practiced and preferred practicality over faith. The school came highly recommended, and the Einsteins wanted nothing more than the best for their only son. So Einstein was enrolled as the only Jewish boy in the school. 
The fact that Einstein was the only Jewish kid, though, didn't sit well with some of the other students. Einstein was already teased for his penchant for self-exile and his muttering, but the fact that he was also different religiously made him an even bigger target. This only reinforced Einstein's idea of being an outsider and further drove him to social seclusion. Yet he didn't mind this as much as you'd think. Einstein enjoyed his time alone as it offered him time to reflect. One day, though, Einstein got sick and was bedridden for days. Hoping to cheer him up, his father brought him something, a compass. While that may seem mundane to most, to Einstein, this was the cornerstone of his life. Everything about it got me excited to learn more. What invisible forces were acting on it? Why did the needle only point north? What origins were that of electromagnetism? My mind raced with endless explanations and a desire to know more. Einstein later cites that compass as part of why he pursued a career in field theories and physics. By 1888, Albert was nine, old enough to move out of the Catholic school and into the Lutpold Gymnasium. But the gymnasium wasn't much better for Albert. While he was regarded as a wonderful student in terms of academia, he started to show an anti-establishment mentality. Albert felt trapped by the Prussian and militaristic education system. Much of the gym's methods were based on heavily regimented discipline and repetitive learning. It was during this time that Albert developed a rebellious nature, one born out of his natural curiosity and dissatisfaction with many of his professor's answers. Those at the school seemed very much akin to the methods of the Prussian army, where mechanical discipline was achieved by repeated execution and meaningless order. The more Einstein seemed to question things, the more he was disliked. This tenacity actually ended with him being told he'd never amount to anything by one of his teachers. Was this around the same time he failed mathematics? Actually, that's a myth. While Albert struggled at times with learning languages, he excelled profoundly at math. The myth originates from Einstein's school records, where he was graded on a scale of 1 to 6. At first, 1 was the best score. Einstein got consistent ones. But in his last year of schooling, the grading system was reversed, so now six was the best score and one was the worst. The year of the change, Einstein got a six in math, once again receiving the highest mark possible. He actually jumped several grades in math for his age, and even taught himself algebra and geometry during his summer vacation. Wow. Must have been love. Why else would you practice math during your summer vacation? <laughs> yeah. This love of math and science was spurred on by two individuals in Einstein's life. The first was a visiting student, Max Talmund, and the other, his uncle, Jacob. Max Talmund was a family friend who often joined the Einsteins for dinner. The 12-year-old brought all kinds of science books for Albert to read, the most important of which was a series of books on natural science by Aaron Bernstein. What made these books so impactful on 12-year-old Einstein was their use of visuals to explain complex subject matter. Einstein had always visualized pictures in his head. It helped him focus and understand the world around him. With these books, Einstein found a kindred way of explaining things. These books introduced the idea of the speed of light to Einstein, and later inspired him to work on the photoelectric effect. But. More on that later. Mm -hmm. Einstein's uncle Jacob also spurred the boy's curiosity. Like Talmud, uncle Jacob bought Einstein puzzles and books to test the boy's prowess. Each time, young Albert continued to impress and astonish his uncle, despite the difficulty of some of the puzzles. This excited uncle Jacob, who hoped the boy would later become an engineer like himself. 
Sadly, while Einstein's mind continued to grow, his parents' business began to shrink. The electrical company was in dire straits and struggling. Over time, the company kept losing out on contracts to other firms. Hoping for better luck elsewhere, Herman packed up his family and moved to Milan, Italy. They left 15-year-old Einstein to continue his schooling in Munich. Einstein spent the next year in Munich unhappy. He continued to grow dissatisfied with a militaristic style of schooling at the gymnasium. To make matters worse, he would soon turn 16, which meant he was one year away from mandatory military service, something he dreaded. So during his Christmas break, Einstein had a family friend who was a doctor write him a note saying he was suffering from exhaustion and wouldn't be able to return. Einstein then traveled to Italy to be with his parents, who had no idea he was coming. They were shocked at his arrival, not to mention his intentions of never returning to Germany to finish school. As you can imagine, Einstein's parents didn't take this news very well. Yet Albert assured them that this was merely a temporary stay, as he had plans to enroll in a prestigious university the following year, Zurich Polytechnic. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. When we last left off, Albert Einstein had left Munich to rejoin his parents in Italy. Now 17, Albert wished to enroll in the Swiss University, Zurich Polytechnic. He admired the school's catalog of sciences and had high hopes of becoming a professor of physics. That fall, Albert took the entrance exam. Though he was a year younger than most applicants, he did present several great letters of recommendation from family and friends. And he got in? Not exactly. Despite Einstein's vast intellect, getting into Zurich proved harder than expected. While he did great in the mathematics and in areas of physics, he left much to be desired in his language section, chemistry and botany portions. At the time, I thought such notions were irrelevant in my pursuits. Why pester with that which had no hold on the grand design? The school's director, Heinrich Weber, was still impressed by Albert's tenacity and genius in sciences. He offered to have Einstein stay at Zurich and audit his classes. Einstein turned him down, though, deciding to travel 25 miles west to the cantonal, or small territory, school of Aarau. So from 1895 to 1896, Albert attended the Swiss School of Aro with the purpose of retaking Zurich Polytechnic's entrance exam one year later. Aro actually proved to be one of Albert's favorite times in his life. Unlike the gymnasium, Aro didn't rely on mechanical learning. Instead, the school based its method on the ideas of Swiss reformer Johann Pestalozzi. Pestalozzi encouraged students to visualize images and work hands-on with experimentation and conceptual thinking. Rote drills, memorization, and force-fed facts were avoided. It was here Einstein developed his trademark thought experimentation style of science. Well, this meant that Einstein, rather than doing physical experimentation, provided all his thoughts in theories on paper through theoretical situations, a trait that he'd used for the majority of his career when developing his theories. It was also here that Einstein first imagined running alongside a beam of light and whether it would retain its shape. If a person could run after a light wave with the same speed as light, would the wave arrangement be completely independent of time? This idea would mark Albert as one of the greatest scientific geniuses of all time. But first, Albert had to get through school. It was also at this time that Albert started to come into his own as a young man. 
He was described as having wavy, dark hair, expressive eyes, and a high forehead with a jaunty demeanor. Girls are quoted as saying he had masculine good looks of the type that played havoc at the turn of the century. <laughs> a lady killer, huh? <laughs> Who would have thought? While at Adau, Albert lived with one of Adau's schoolmasters, Joost Winteler. Joost admired the boy's moxie and took the boy in while he studied. Einstein was beloved by the family, especially by Winteler's daughter, Marie. The two became nearly inseparable. Einstein, who had never fancied himself a social creature, was discovering the joys of companionship. He was engaging with others, laughing and socializing, something he'd never truly done most of his life. And he was sharing it with a girl he loved. But their time together was soon cut short. The year came to an end, and Albert went back to Zurich to try his luck at the university. Taking the test a second time, Albert was successful. He passed all of his subjects, some more so than others. In his French section, he wrote a very interesting piece. If I am lucky and pass my exams, I will enroll in the Zurich Polytechnic. I will stay there four years to study mathematics and physics. I suppose I will become a professor or teacher in these fields of science, opting for the theoretical part of these sciences. The essay's topic was, what are your plans for the future? Definitely seems like Albert had his heart set on Zurich, and more importantly, his passion for science. Albert was thrilled and couldn't wait to attend. There was just one problem. Marie. Albert loved Marie, but was driven by his need for scientific discovery. Marie encouraged Albert to go and promised him she'd write him daily. Albert agreed to keep up correspondence while pursuing his dreams. So, in 1896, Albert Einstein started school at the Zurich Polytechnic University. This was an exciting time for Albert. Finally, he could walk the halls with other like-minded individuals. He could further develop his ideas and theories and soon join the pantheon of other famous scientists. First, though, Albert would have to learn discipline, something that still eluded him. Albert would sometimes tune out lectures or even sleep through them if he was that disinterested. Other times, he would flat out skip them entirely. He questioned authority constantly, whether it was a widely accepted thesis or simply school rules. This behavior eventually alienated him from many of his professors, including Heinrich Weber, the professor who helped get Albert into Zurich in the first place. Well, this rebellious nature got Albert in trouble more often than people think. It even got Albert seriously injured. On one occasion, Albert decided to ignore his chemistry teacher's instructions while dealing with highly volatile chemicals. He proceeded with his own chemistry experiment. The results did not end well. The concoction exploded, sending the class in a frenzy. Students darted out of the room, everyone except Albert, that is. He lay on the floor clutching his hand. Thankfully, his injuries were minor, but Albert couldn't play the violin for weeks. It was a hard lesson, but one he needed to learn. Seems like karma caught up with Albert a little on that one. Mm -hmm. Call it what you will, but his time at Zurich wasn't all that pleasant. Einstein felt burdened by his family's financial failings. More than anything, he felt frustrated that his father continued to open up electrical businesses that seemed destined to fail. Their second firm in Milan had just failed, and Herman was planning to open a third. I worry about mother and father's financial shortcomings. Whether they will finally move beyond this crisis or continue this illusion of success. Albert hoped his father would take a job elsewhere like his uncle Jacob, who finally joined an engineering firm. Yet Herman seemed set in his ways. 
If that wasn't bad enough, Albert felt exhausted in his relationship with Marie. Usually the two would write each other constantly, but after his first year at Zurich, that changed for Albert. His letters to Marie slowly became infrequent, and sometimes he'd send nothing at all besides his laundry. Finally, Albert wrote Marie a Dear John letter saying the distance that had grown between the two was too great, and he sought to liberate them from the shackles of their relationship. Marie was heartbroken and fell into a nervous depression. Thankfully, she recovered shortly thereafter and married a manager of a watch factory. Einstein, on the other hand, chose to bury his emotions in his work. I'm fortunate I got to experience such pleasures and pain once, but have little ambition to follow through such course again if possible. Despite this notion, Einstein quickly rebounded from his romance with Marie and fell for a Slavic girl in his physics class named Mileva Marich. Mileva was a serious and calculated girl. Born with a congenital hip issue, she had a slight limp to her step, yet she was fiercely intelligent, something that caught Albert's attention. At first, the two weren't openly affectionate and mostly wrote each other regarding physics and their own theories regarding science. This analytical flirtation soon turned to romance, and Mileva and Albert became a couple. But like many love stories, the parents didn't approve. Albert's mother, Pauline, didn't approve of Mileva. She didn't like her plainly features or intellectual ferocity. She also wasn't too fond of her Slavic background, having always hoped Albert would marry a nice German girl. Plus, Mileva was four years older than Albert. Despite his mother's concerns for his love life, Albert had other problems. Soon, the year was 1900, and that meant it was graduation time. Usually, students have to do a paper, yet Einstein refused. Why would he do that? Uh, It wasn't that he didn't like the idea of doing papers. It's that both of his proposals were shot down by the university. The paper proposals included predicting how fast the Earth was moving through the suspected ether, and how different metals conduct heat in relation to electrons. Both ideas weren't accepted as suitable material for the essay, so Einstein finally gave up entirely. Still a rebel. Without his paper, Albert still came forth out of the five students in his department to graduate. So despite skipping a mandatory paper, Einstein's grades were so good he still passed? Sounds pretty good to me. Perhaps. But because of Einstein's rebellious nature, many instructors, including Professor Weber, had grown annoyed and displeased with Einstein. And as he'd soon find out, this would prove havoc for him trying to find a job. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to historical figures. Having just graduated the Zurich Polytechnic University, Albert set out to find a job as a professor. To do so, Albert would have to eat crow and do something he never wanted to do. Write a paper on something he found mundane, something he refused to do while at Zurich. So, in December of 1900, Albert wrote his first paper on the capillary effect, or why substances like water cling to the surfaces of things. The paper offered little in terms of innovation and mostly built upon the ideas of molecules forming temporary bonds to one another. While the paper received little praise, it was Albert's first work discussing atoms and molecules. Most people don't realize this, but notions such as molecules and atoms were widely regarded as mere conjecture at the turn of the century. Few actively believed in their existence, let alone offered evidence of such. 
That following February, Albert got his Swiss citizenship, something he'd been waiting for since his arrival in Arau over six years ago. This also meant he could now work as a civil servant or as a teacher. Still, the next couple of years would be hard for Albert Einstein. Work was hard to come by. Most of his professors disliked him for his rebellious attitude, so few wrote him letters of recommendation, and some even wrote poor references. One professor who was especially volatile to Albert was Professor Weber, who went out of his way to tarnish Albert's reputation. Albert sent letters all across Europe with the hopes of finding something. Even Einstein's father, Hermann, wrote letters to try and get his son a job. Sadly, he found no such luck either. To make matters worse, Hermann's latest electrical company went bankrupt. Einstein again implored his father to stop opening electrical firms, but his pleas fell on deaf ears. Albert was slowly going broke looking for work, so he took on freelance jobs as a tutor for math and science. Yet tutoring didn't seem to fit the scientist's repertoire. He sometimes grew frustrated with his students and was fired constantly for teaching what he considered important as opposed to the accepted standards. Hope seemed to elude the young scientist. Einstein finally found salvation in his friend Marcel Grossman. Marcel told Einstein that a position was going to open as a patent clerk at the University of Bern in Switzerland. He promised the job to Albert once it was listed. All Albert had to do was be patient. Einstein was thrilled. To celebrate, he and Mileva set out on vacation to Lake Como for a romantic getaway. He wrote to her saying, Bring my little blue dressing gown so we can wrap ourselves up in it. I promise you an outing the likes of which you've never seen. This would lead to Einstein's darkest secret. Maleva and Einstein's trip was magical, but it brought with it an unexpected surprise. Maleva was pregnant, which was quite a scandal for the time. In order to preserve her lover's integrity, Mileva fled to Novi Sad to have the baby. In January 1901, Mileva gave birth to Liserol Einstein. Albert Einstein wouldn't go see Mileva and Liserol, though, opting to stay in Bern working. He hoped he'd find a better job soon and support his new child. Some time later, Mileva returned to Bern to join Einstein. It is unclear whatever happened to Liserol. Some think Mileva gave the child to her friend Helene Savik. Others say the child died of scarlet fever. One popular theory is that Liserol survived her scarlet fever but was blinded. She was then raised by a different family and lived well into the 1990s under the name Zorka, though this has never been confirmed. Einstein never got a chance to see her. Hmm, how tragic. Afterwards, Mileva went into a bit of a depression. Finally, Albert received some good news. On June 12, 1902, the patent job in Bern came through. Albert was finally employed. The job actually turned out to be better than Einstein could have hoped. It was relatively easy, afforded him lots of time to work on his own theories, and he earned more money working there than he would have as a junior professor. In hindsight, working as a patent clerk was probably the best thing that could have happened to Einstein. The work was easy, with Einstein finishing most of his duties in the morning and getting the afternoon to work on his theories. For once, it looked like things were going Albert's way. Then more tragedy struck. In October of 1902, Hermann Einstein died. But just before his death, Hermann and Albert shared a tender moment, with Hermann giving his son his blessings to marry Maleva. Yet Einstein would be haunted for some time after, believing his father saw him as a failure. Did he think I was never to amount to anything? Such was my fear as well. 
With his deceased father's blessings, Albert married Mileva on January 6, 1903. They married in a private ceremony at Albert's office. Neither wanted family present, so only close friends were invited. Their first son, Hans Albert Einstein, was born on May 14, 1904. Whether burdened with guilt about what happened to Liesrel or by seeing the sight of his child, Albert became a devoted father. He built Hans plenty of toys, like a dad building Legos for his kid. The child also reinvigorated Maleva, who had been struggling since the loss of Liesrel. Still, the best was yet to come, as 1905 would prove to be Einstein's miracle year. Einstein had always been fascinated by field theories, or theories that explained natural phenomena. Most scientists at the time tended to focus less on these theories, accepting Newton's law as the be-all, end-all, and that the Earth existed in a sort of ether. Yet in 1905, Albert Einstein changed the course of human history with four papers dubbed the Annus Mirabilis Papers, the Miracle Year Papers. The first was called on the heuristic viewpoint concerning the production and transformation of light. This paper focused on the photoelectric theory. The photoelectric theory deals with how light beams interact with metal. As light hits certain metals, it causes them to give off electrically charged particles called electrons. This theory was important as it showed that photons in the light beam knocked electrons out of metals and explained the glow around material when it gets heated, like iron. This theory further explored how waves involved tiny particles of light, known as quanta, and also supported the notion of atoms. Einstein's paper presented all of this with mathematical formulas that could be easily tested. From March of 1905 to June of that same year, Einstein worked tirelessly on it. Following that paper, he worked on the movement of small particles suspended in stationary liquids required by the molecular, this theory further explored the ideas of atoms and molecules, while at the same time presenting calculations that could calculate the size of atoms. Einstein's last two papers, however, were the bombshells. Both figuratively and literally. Aha, well played. <laughs> I try. In his papers on electrodynamics of moving bodies and does inertia of a body depend upon its energy content, Einstein laid out the groundwork for his special theory of relativity and general relativity. These papers answered Einstein's question, what would happen if you ran alongside a light beam? Here, Einstein used his trademark thought experiment. Einstein would visualize the problem, then in his head write out various equations. To illustrate the idea, Einstein thought about two men, one on a train and one waiting for a train. If a flash of light happens as the train passes the man waiting, both men will experience the light differently. The man on the train will view the light traveling at the same speed in both directions, as he's moving at the same speed as the train. Yet the man waiting on the platform will see the flash, yet the beam will reach the back of the train quicker than going to the front due to its motion. Light moves at the same speed regardless, but the men perceive it differently. Einstein discerned that time was relative and varied in observation depending on the subject. A man on a train feels time differently than a man waiting for it. He followed this idea up in the following paper, which pointed out that the mass of an object multiplied by the speed of light equaled its energy. In other words, 
E equals mc squared.、Mm -hmm. This made people realize that mass and energy were manifestations of the same thing, and that tiny particles could be converted into huge amounts of energy. Einstein hadn't realized it yet, but his work would herald in the atomic age. These papers, published through 1905, earned him his doctorate in physics, yet did little for him job-wise. Despite his doctorate, Albert still got little recognition for his work. In fact, when Albert finally got recognition, it wasn't for his theories on relativity; it was for his photoelectric theory. In February of 1908, Albert published a continuation of his work on the photoelectric theory that would earn him the title of Privatdozent at Bern. This meant he could study and work independently as a teacher and scholar. Einstein got a job as a professor's assistant, but later returned to Zurich in 1909, where he was named professor extraordinary. This meant better pay and bigger prestige, but even then, offers continued to roll in. Einstein was now in high demand. Institutions all across Europe wanted Einstein to come work for them. Everyone wanted a piece of him. Yet Einstein kept his eccentric demeanor for the most part and preferred to stick close to his family, especially since another child was on the way. The following year, Maleva gave birth to their second son, Edward. Einstein was again ecstatic with joy. In fact, he seemed to play with the children more than spend time with his wife. A fact that wasn't lost on Maleva. As Albert's fame grew, so too did Maleva's jealousy. She hated it when he went out with colleagues and other prestigious scientists for drinks. She was both envious and beside herself. It seemed that Albert was spending more time with his peers and work, and less time with his family. Still, Einstein reassured Maleva that he had no desires to betray her or the children. And while Albert seemed aloof at times, when he was with his kids, he was a devoted father, taking the boys on hikes and playing games with them. But life with Maleva continued to become more and more strained. Albert's jumping around from educational institution, working as a professor, drove Maleva manic. She grew tired of constantly uprooting. Einstein reasoned that he was doing it to find the best possible job for his family. In truth, Albert did not enjoy teaching as much as he thought. The hours were long. He didn't like preparing for lectures, and he didn't have time to work on his latest project, his special theory of relativity. I grew fatigued by the monotony of it. Truly, I wished to pursue my own thoughts and ideas. Relativity was still so close, yet so far away. The theory of general relativity was to be Albert's magnum opus. He considered it his crown jewel, a general system of formulas that connected everything in the universe. Lucky for him, Albert was finally offered a job that would stick. He was offered the position of director of physics at the Prussian Institute in Berlin. Einstein didn't like this idea of returning to the militaristic society of Germany, but the pay was good. His job was simple. He didn't have to teach. It was the dream package. Einstein accepted the job, making him the youngest member of the Prussian Institute at 34 years old. Maleva's depression and jealousy only seemed to increase. Soon, she refused to leave the house and was generally unpleasant to their guests and family friends. Even Albert was at his wit's end. Soon, the two would do little but fight. It seemed like Albert had no allies in his marital war. That is, until he was reunited with his distant cousin Elsa. Albert had met Elsa when he was a boy, but the two were reintroduced when Albert visited Berlin in 1912. The two seemed to connect emotionally, given their history of romantic trouble. Elsa had recently gone through a messy divorce, a future Albert slowly began to see for himself. The two started a correspondence. 
Most of the time, Albert simply vented about Maleva, but after a while, the letters turned romantic. Einstein fell for her due to her compassionate nature and sympathy for his plight, having gone through a divorce herself. In fact, part of the allure of taking the director's job in Germany was to be closer to Elsa. Albert moved to Berlin for his job in April of 1914. Maleva, however, caught on to the letters and refused to go to Berlin. She distrusted Elsa, fearing her as a romantic rival. But with Albert now alone in Berlin, Maleva eventually gave in and arrived in Berlin in late 1914. Albert and Maleva tried to reconcile, but that proved impossible. Their marital discourse only seemed to grow worse. It finally got to the point where Maleva left the house, taking the children. She stayed with a mutual friend while she and Einstein tried to work things out. The two discussed terms of separation, not yet divorce, and on July 14, 1914, Einstein parted with his sons at the train station. This was one of the hardest moments for Einstein. It said he cried all day when he said farewell to them. With no one else to turn to, Einstein went to Elsa for comfort. She welcomed him with open arms. Soon the two began an official romantic relationship, and Elsa sought to marry Albert immediately. But Albert wasn't ready for such a commitment. Not yet. Heartbroken, Albert returned to his work to mask his pain. Sadly, his work would be interrupted. In the same year his wife and children left him, World War I began. Germany was fueled with nationalism and fighting spirit. Many scientists went off to help Germany create new horrifying weapons. Albert Einstein, however, did not. It's no secret that Albert disdained authority and militaristic regimes, but he was also a lifelong pacifist. He believed that as intellectuals, scientists had a duty to help prevent war. This would mark the first time Albert was public about his political and social views. This outspoken nature was further inflamed when some 93 scientists signed the Appeal to the Cultural World in October of 1914. This document denied German aggression and promoted war as a necessity. Albert wrote a pacifist response and signed an anti-war manifesto demanding peace. This, of course, didn't sit well with many of Germany's scientists and citizens. They drug his name through the mud calling him derogatory names and Jewish slurs. Such comments would continue even through the war's end in 1918. Albert ignored their derogatory comments and continued work on his general relativity theory. He had completed his special theory of relativity in 1905, but realized two facts later. One, that no physical interaction can propagate faster than the speed of light. And two, that this theory only applied to constant velocity. So what about changing velocity? Thus he set out to explain these missing pieces. So from 1911 until 1915, Einstein worked to reconcile these problems. Einstein developed the equivalence principle, which stated that inertial effects are equal to gravitational effects. They were manifestations of the same structure. This also meant that light itself could be bent by gravity. From this principle, Einstein worked on a series of equations that, if proven, could specify how the geometry of space and time are influenced by the matter and radiation around it. So in 1916, he published his paper on general theory. The paper addressed mathematical formulas pertaining to gravity and how it affects time and space, and addressed theories on radiation and accurate calculations of the orbit of the stars and planets. 
But while Albert was figuring out the inner workings of the universe, his marriage to Mileva finally came to a close. After being pressured by Elsa and her family, Einstein finally wrote to Mileva begging for a divorce. Mileva reluctantly agreed. And in February of 1919, the divorce went through. Albert and Elsa were married that June. Albert promised Mileva he'd still help raise the boys and sent her a substantial stipend to encourage trust. Albert would stay in close contact with his sons, and he promised that if he ever won a Nobel Prize, he would give some of the money to Mileva in order to help raise the boys. And that Nobel Prize was closer than Albert was aware. Following a messy divorce, Einstein's fame continued to grow, especially after one of his tenets of the general theory was proven correct in November of 1919. In May of 1919, two ships set sail to various parts of the world. One ship sailed off the coast of West Africa, while the other to northern Brazil. The objective was to test Einstein's equations on general relativity during an eclipse in November. If proven right, it could change the course of history. In November of 1919, the ships arrived at their locations just as the eclipse happened. Measurements were taken using Einstein's formulas. Upon completion of the eclipse, the data proved that Einstein's calculations were in fact correct and universal. This was historic news, and Einstein was hailed as the next Isaac Newton. Thankful that his work was finally getting recognition, Einstein published his paper on special relativity in 1920 and began a tour of the world giving lectures. During this time, talk of a Nobel Prize was beginning to stir, and the committee sought to nominate Einstein. Einstein couldn't have been more elated, though he was surprised when he found out that he was getting his prize on photoelectric theory, not his work on relativity. While my work with light quanta was successful, I find it pales in comparison to that of my theory of relativity. It was a bittersweet moment, but in 1921, Albert Einstein was named the winner of the Nobel Prize, though he wouldn't actually receive the award until 1922 due to his continued worldwide lecture tour. Even then, he chose to talk about his theory of relativity at his acceptance speech rather than the photoelectric theory. But in all seriousness, the photoelectric theory was important. Because of it, Einstein was able to prove one of his theories of general relativity. It explained how light consists of packets of energies that respond to certain frequencies. This idea has been applied to telecommunications, photodiodes, and solar panels. From the 1920s into the 1930s, Einstein enjoyed an era of scientific prosperity and fame. He received numerous honorary doctorates and memberships in medicine, science, philosophy, you name it. He continued to tour the world as a scientific celebrity, becoming friends with such popular figures as Sigmund Freud, Charlie Chaplin, and Rabindranath Tagore. But all good things must come to an end. As the 1930s rolled up, the world became a much scarier place for Einstein. First, Einstein's son Edward suffered a severe nervous breakdown and was placed in an institution for schizophrenia the rest of his life. But while his son went through health struggles, Germany was going through a different type of struggle. Enraged from the Treaty of Versailles and taking the blame for most of World War I, Germany went through a revolution of fascism and radical militarism. As tensions rose among the populace, one party rose above the rest, the Nazi party. The Nazi party soon took over Germany and condemned minorities as the root of Germany's problem. One particular target of the Nazis were Jewish-German citizens. 
It didn't matter how high up the totem pole you were. If you were Jewish, you were part of the problem. This radical thought of persecution quickly infected the masses. Albert spoke out against this, but it seemed his pleas fell on deaf ears. Soon the Nazis began to target Einstein. They hired 100 scientists to try and discredit Einstein, calling his work Jewish physics. While the Nazis failed at ridiculing Einstein, violence continued to escalate in Germany. The Nazis raided his weekend home looking for weapons to further condemn the Jewish scientists and confiscated most of his belongings, including his boat. Then, in April of 1933, Jewish people were barred from working in state or office positions, even some universities. Einstein could no longer find work. Elsa pleaded for them to flee, but Einstein sought to stay. To top it off, he had made a list of enemies of the state. He was labeled as, quote, not yet hanged, and there was a $5,000 bounty on his head. Finally, Einstein realized it was time to get out. So in October of 1933, Einstein took a position at Princeton University in America, never to return to Germany. While Einstein didn't enjoy teaching, he found his role at Princeton most acceptable. He even enjoyed it at times. Einstein loved America's meritocracy and notions of free speech. It was also during this time that Albert changed his views of pacifism to one of self-defense in the face of tyranny and oppression. He published several books on his philosophy and notions of peace, including Why War in 1933 and My Philosophy in 1934. Sadly, following the publication of My Philosophy, Elsa grew ill and died of heart and kidney failure in 1935. Einstein was heartbroken, once again retreating into his work to deal with his grief. Einstein would never remarry after losing Elsa. Finishing out the 1930s, Einstein began to work on his unifying field theory. This would pull all of his work into one massive unified thesis. He also began contributing to quantum physics and relativistic cosmology. Yet all that would pale in comparison to what was about to be realized. In 1938, four scientists, Otto Hahn, Fritz Strassmann, Lise Meitner, and Otto Frisch, split the uranium atom using Einstein's work. This proved that atoms contain huge amounts of energy within them. The physics community was in an uproar, but this also gave rise to a new threat, weaponized atomic energy. With the reveal of nuclear power, Einstein's contemporary, Leo Szilard, pleaded to have Einstein help him write to President FDR. The goal was to convince him to start work on a new type of weapon that employed this destructive power. They feared the Germans were already working on one themselves, and it was only a matter of time before they completed it. Einstein agreed and immediately wrote the president in early 1939. By October of 1939, FDR wrote Einstein saying work on such a device was being considered by a newly formed uranium committee. Pretty soon, the Manhattan Project was underway, with several of Einstein's contemporaries working on what would become the atom bomb. Yet Einstein himself wouldn't take part directly. Due to his socialist leanings back in Germany, the FBI feared he could be a liability down the road. Still, Einstein raised funds for the military and worked on Navy-based weapon systems. Yet Einstein would still carry the guilt of what would come next. On August 6, 1945, the first weaponized atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. The results were devastating. Einstein was horrified. 
to see his work converted into such machinations, Einstein had to do something. Along with Szilard and Robert Oppenheimer, the director of the Manhattan Project, Einstein founded the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists in 1947. The group advocated the curtailing of nuclear weapons and serious control over all nuclear technology. That was all Einstein did post-war. He became a leading advocate in anti-war sentiments and a key figure in the One World Government movement. He wrote espousing the newly formed UN to maintain nuclear weapons as a deterrent. Einstein didn't stop there in his public activism. He staunchly opposed racism, calling it a disease, and even became a member of the NAACP. Finally, though, Einstein retired from teaching in 1945, but continued to improve his universal theory in quiet isolation at Princeton. He published his paper on universal theory in 1950, though much of it was incomplete, one of his great regrets though he continued to work up until one faithful night in April 1955. While preparing for a televised speech, Einstein suffered an abdominal aortic aneurysm, causing severe internal bleeding. He was rushed to the hospital. While being prepped for surgery, Einstein stopped the doctors. When asked why, Einstein said, I have lived long enough. I am content with my life. The next day, on April 18, 1955, Albert Einstein died. He was 76. His death rocked the world of science, yet he had given the world so much. In fact, even after his death, Einstein was still getting credit for his work. He was nominated 62 times for a Nobel Prize and won it two more times for his work in relativity in 1993 and 1995, 40 years after his death. His theories and revelations continue to change the course of history as we know it. He has revolutionized how we look at the universe and will forever be known as the grandfather of modern science. Albert Einstein was an eccentric man, yet he may have been one of the smartest men to walk the earth. Einstein was regarded for his childlike wonder, his wit, and extreme dedication and concentration when it came to his work. He expanded the works of Newton and introduced us to new possibilities regarding space and time. In fact, it's thanks to him ideas such as faster-than-light travel, atomic-powered vehicles, even time travel, came to be, all from his complex daydreams. Even to this day, his work is still recognized. His face has become the most used image to represent scientists. Countless awards and things named after him, including the Albert Einstein Peace Award, the Albert Einstein Medal, the Albert Einstein Award, Albert Einstein High School, the Einstein Unit of Measurement, the list doesn't end. Albert's work has continued to serve as inspiration to scientists hoping to unlock the keys to the universe and beyond. So to Albert Einstein, we say thank you for your hard work and your enduring legacy. You are truly one of our greatest historical figures. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. 
And don't forget to join us next Wednesday as we explore the fascinating lives of Lewis and Clark. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Michael Pendis and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 